0: From a distance, there is harmony, and it echoes through the land. It's the voice of hope. It's the voice of peace. It's the voice of every man. Thanks, Bette Mittler. We hear at Solutions to Violence, and our guest today, Dr. Joseph Kiyakosik, hopes that the voice of peace reaches our political leadership, so they, too, figure out ways to solve international conflict via peace and harmony. Welcome to Solutions to Violence, folks. You are listening to Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM. We are delighted you can join us here again today as we talk with today's guest, Dr. Joseph Kip Kozik. I'm Jim Johnson here with Jamie McMillan. We are your hope for solution to balance a broadcast program of and sponsored by Board Radio. The following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational Programming. The views expressed are those of our guests and not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you can do this by emailing us at solution to balls eighteen at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from
1: you. Dr. Joseph Kip Kosak, scholar of religion and culture and author of Acts of Conscious, Christian Nonviolence and Modern American Democracy, issued by Columbia University Press in January 2009. The book traces the history of some American religious radicals whose belief in nonviolence led them to work for international peace, economic justice, and racial equality amid the catastrophic bloodshed of the 20th century. Kip was selected to join the 2009-11 class of Young Scholars in American Religion, run by the Center for the Study of Religion and American Culture at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. Kip serves as the Director of Undergraduate Studies at the AMST department. Kozak is a former fellow of the library's John W. Gluge Center. Dr. Kip Kozak, welcome again to solutions to violence. Thanks for having me. Acts of Conscious, and Christian Nonviolence and Modern American Democracy is the title of your book. In it, you write about Christian pacifists. Why did you choose to write about pacifists and Christians in particular?
2: Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. It's, It's great to talk about this book that came out a few years ago, but still happy to talk about it. And I started this, oddly enough, not, first of all, interested in nonviolence. I was really interested more generally in religion and politics and really how religion had shaped especially modern American politics and and public life. I was kind of interested in thinking about, about why religion had persisted and been so important with figures like Martin Luther King or or figures on, on the right like Jerry Falwell, right? In the modern age, right? When one might think that we were a secular society, a modern, rational, industrialized world in which religion would have no place, but we, we see in various ways religion contributing to american politics culture public life and so i i started there and then and then kind of got interested in nonviolence as a way of thinking about these questions as a way of thinking about a way that religion had really influenced american in this case social movements and i was interested in thinking about where did nonviolence come from? Martin Luther King didn't invent it, Rosa Parks didn't invent it, so where did it come from? And especially this this particular form of nonviolence that we might call non non-violent direct action, this particular s- set of strategies and practices that used a militant nonviolence to try to change the social order, sit-ins, boycotts, marches, and so on. So not, so not just the principle of turning the other cheek or being peaceful, but this very specific form of political action that had developed, which is, uh, if you think about it, a little strange, right? It's not something that is uh, an ordinary thing to do, to go into a restaurant as the participants and sit-ins did in, in the 60s and sit there and not be served and continue to sit there while People poured ketchup on your on your head or whatever it was, right? It's not a, it's not an ordinary thing to do that we would do on an ordinary day as part of ordinary politics, right? It's, it, and so I and so I had the question like what how did people get the idea to do this like where did these ideas come from? And so the book explores that and of course it finds that nonviolence had many different kinds of sources, right? Including the peace movement after World War One, but it kind of expanded beyond that. It drew on the labor movement, which is a little surprising to me because we don't necessarily think of the labor movement uh, as central to nonviolence. But you know, what is a strike but a form of nonviolent action? It drew on religious ideas, which I was particularly interested in, from liberal Christianity and the social gospel, and so it, it drew on a number of sources. And so this is a book that it's you know it's a history and it's a kind of deep dive into how we got here. Less than a you know it's not so much a book that's immediately kind of motivating people or persuading people or or telling people the, the three things they should do to save the world. It's really more of a deep kind of analysis and attempt at understanding of of how we got where we are. And so that's that's a bit about about what I what I thought I was doing. Okay. So Dr.
0: Cossack, you discussed the impact of radical Christian pacifists on American democracy and practice at the Library of Congress. In your book, you stated, and this is a quote, in response to the massive bloodshed that defined the 20th century, American religious radicals developed an effective new form of nonviolent protest, one that combined Christian principles with new uses of mass media. Greatly influenced by the ideas of Mahatma Gandhi, acts of conscience, including sit-ins, boycotts, labor strikes, conscientious objection to war, so, beginning with World War One and ending with the ascendance of Martin Luther King Jr., what do you feel was the ultimate impact of radical Christian pacifists on America, on the United States?
2: Yeah, well, as you say, I start kind of in in World War One and and the aftermath of that, and particularly looking at the the opponents of World War One and really their feelings of of failure and feelings that this horrible thing had happened, and they had. Opposed it, but not been able to prevent it, and feeling that, that there had to be a different way of, of solving problems, but not a not a great sense as I in the early chapters of the book in the teens and twenties of what the alternative was, and so the book is kind of about thinking about you know the we have this principle of nonviolence. We know that war is a terrible thing, that racial violence is a terrible thing, right? But what's the what's the alternative, and how do we put that into practice? And one of the kind of in the, then in, the, in the middle of the book, especially in the 30s and 40s, you see this kind of development and this kind of interplay of ideas of liberal Christian ideas, and then particularly the example of Gandhi, who seemed to the, the Americans that I'm writing about to be someone who had used nonviolence and had some success, who was maybe getting at that question of like, how do we, how do, we do it? How do we actually make this? A, a thing that could have an impact in the world, so the so the people that I'm writing about were some of the first Americans to like popularize the work of Gandhi and kind of bring his ideas and what he was doing to a broader audience in America so this is back in the thirties and forties, so decades before martin luther king and 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 the civil rights movement that we think of, one of the people in my book, John Haynes Holmes you know, republished Gandhi's autobiography and preached sermons about him and really tried to kind of spread awareness of, of, of what this guy was doing. Another guy I wrote about, Richard Gregg, went over to India. He was an American, went over to India, lived with Gandhi for a while, tried to figure out like what he was doing and what his what his ideas were, and then came back and wrote a lot for Americans about how about what Gandhi was doing and how he thought like Gandhi's ideas might be translated into an American context and people who wanted to figure out American social and political problems. So that's one of their uh, impacts is to kind of develop this, this idea of nonviolence. And then in the 40s and 50s, they kind of do some of the first nonviolent actions that we would recognize as, you know, modern nonviolent protests. So a lot of the things that have more famous examples in the 60s were actually done on a very small scale in the 40s and 50s, so decades earlier. So the sit-ins of the 1960s, the, the you know, the Greensboro and the Woolworths uh, lunch counters, the people in my book were, were trying those out as early as the 1940s, doing sit-ins on a very small scale. It's a very small number of people. They're seen as, you know, Either some, either kind of crazy or, or or just forgotten. You know, it doesn't really take off in the way that it does in the in the 1960s. If you think about the Freedom Rides of the 1960s, well, there's an earlier bus integration attempt called the Journey of Reconciliation in 1947, I think it is. And again, it doesn't really take off. It's not as famous. Doesn't have the same kind of drama as the Freedom Rides. But the people that I'm writing about are kind of like developing these new techniques and kind of trying them out on a small scale. And eventually they end up as advisors to Martin Luther King, to civil rights leaders, to anti-Vietnam War protesters. They're often like a little bit older than those people, but they kind of like are the have the seeds of those 60s movements. So in my mind, I ended up kind of writing about like the kind of avant-garde or leading edge of nonviolence, the people who kind of developed the ideas and techniques that would later be picked up by mass movements in the 60s and beyond.
0: So in here, in Louisville, in 1975, the Presbyterian Theological Seminary here in Louisville, Kentucky, viewed war through a just war theory perspective. Their perspective justified war if the conditions met just ad bellum conditions Established by St. Augustine in the fourth century, just ad bellum, justifies war if the cause is defensive, if all other options have been tried, if the war is sanctioned by the state, and the fighting limits collateral damage. In those days, 1975, a conflict developed within the Presbyterian Seminary hierarchy because the professor, Dr. George Edwards, was a persistent, insistent, absolute pacifist. George's views were based on the Sermon on the Mount, which states, and this is a paraphrase here, it is written, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I saith unto you, turn the other cheek, love thy neighbor as thyself, love thy enemy. After months of debate, George Edwards won the conflict. The liberal Presbyterian Theological Seminary now supports an absolute pacifist position when it comes to their perspective concerning war. So can... Where do you fit on the pacifist continuum? Are you an absolute pacifist, or did you believe war is justified in some circumstance?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in the book, I was trying to represent these characters as, you know, as well as I could and kind of give their, you know, give their view the strongest possible Argument, right? And a lot of them were absolute pacifists. I think that ultimate, I would, I mean, I would describe myself as an advocate of, an advocate for nonviolence. I think I still, even though I'm very sympathetic to these figures, I still kind of hesitate to label myself an absolute pacifist. I still sort of get stuck when I'm, when I was doing the book on the question about World War II, even though I think that their criticisms of these folks of World War II are very important and, and salient, I think that I, I ultimately, I don't think I would have quite been with them when they, you know, went to jail, you know, opposing fighting in World War II, right? So I think like, and I think that's been a, that's, that's been, that's kind of a tension throughout the book. I think like the, the relationship of pacifism in the sense of opposition to all war versus, versus nonviolence. And I think that the people in, this book kind of developed nonviolence in part as a kind of like a tougher or stronger or more militant form of pacifism because they're often accused of, as pacifists, of being weak, right? As being cowardly, all, the, all those kinds of stereotypes, right? So the idea of nonviolence was the idea of nonviolence was you, you might well suffer, right? You might well get hurt. You might well uh, even, even be killed, right? It was going to take courage. It was going to take physical and mental strength to do this. So nonviolence became a, a way to kind of like counter some of those critiques that people made of pacifist weakness.
0: Andrew Preston's book, Sword of the Spirit, Shield of Faith, points out that religion has a powerful influence on U.S. foreign policy, and you pointed that out also. A conservative Christian religion has historically supported all 12 major wars waged by the U.S. military. There is nothing in the Christian Bible, either the Old or the New Testament, that states that God had created a place on earth for followers of Jesus. That being the fact, the case that demonstrates that American exceptionalism is based on religious mythology, not not facts. If American exceptionalism was based on religious mythology how do you justify Christian support for war
2: Yeah I think again to um to take it back to the the, the people that I was writing about I think that you know some of them I, I was quite interested the you know the war that shaped a lot of them was World War I and and many of them went into it supporting the war and even supporting and and people I'm writing about were Um, Christians Christian ministers um, and even believing that the war had religious justification and they really you know so there's one of the people I write about Kirby page who actually you know goes over as like a like a chaplain kind of for the you know during World War one so he's kind of like with the soldiers and um, he's over there in in Europe and 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 he's really He's he's like really changed by the by the by the experience, you know. He really starts to doubt that the things he believes about Christianity and especially about Jesus can really be squared with what he sees, what he sees in Europe, and especially I think after the war, you know, when it seems like it did, it doesn't really have the great facts or it doesn't really World War One doesn't really you know contribute to the march of of progress and Christian love that was kind of promised by some of its supporters so that kind of disappointment after the war contributes to a lot of these figures sort of doubting contributes to them separating their christianity from their support support for war but they continue to confront through and we continue to confront in the 21st century this close alliance of of American nationalism, I guess, and Christianity. And I think that was something that the figures in my book were really trying to break apart and didn't, and, you know, succeeded for themselves, but didn't necessarily succeed in convincing everyone else. I think that one of the things that they were trying to do was think about more, more of an international focus, right? I think that was some of their interest in Gandhi to try to think about that there were people who were uh, are committed to nonviolence. All around the world, right? Committed to um, spiritual these spiritual principles all are all around the world, and that to identify so closely with America and American nationalism was actually a mistake and a distortion of of Christianity.
1: Well, let's look for a moment at the debate over the just war theory versus pacifism in the twenty first century. Currently, war is raging in Ukraine after the Russian army invaded the. U.S. mainland news brings the horrors of the conflict into our living rooms every night. This war began after Russian demands, voiced by Prime Minister Putin, that NATO, a military alliance, guarantee that it would not admit Ukraine to its alliance. Also, that the United States agreed to pull back some of the military bases that surround Russia and pull back some of the U.S. nuclear missiles that surround Russia. President Biden and the U.S.-NATO alliance refused to agree to any of those major demands by Putin. Ukraine military is now fighting, and, and carnage is now displayed on the U.S. Mainline News daily. Should Ukraine simply have surrendered to Russian forces? What's the pacifist position here?
2: Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's a good question for us. And I think in some ways, what has transpired in Ukraine has reminded me a bit of the kind of mood around World War one because if you look at the times during World War one and, and kind of just before there were European and American intellectuals who were writing and saying you know what the world is we are we are we are a modern society right we are interconnected economically culturally and war doesn't make any sense anymore right because all the nations are, Sort of working together and, and cooperating, and to to start to start a war would be in some sense to to hurt yourself because you're you're connected in, in all these ways to other countries, right? So was a, there was this great sense that we were that Europe was had, had kind of evolved beyond war, right? And then the the First World War and especially its duration and severity and the number of people killed was just it was kind of a shock, right? And kind of called into question how much progress. Right Had really been made, or could progress even be reversed, and I feel like there's a similar kind of kind of shock with the invasion of Ukraine, right? The idea that hey, we're in a globalized world, right, we all trade with each other and connected on the internet and whatever, right like what like we're beyond invading each other right at least in 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 Europe, and so there's this kind of shock that these things still occur, so it's kind of a, maybe a perennial shock about how much less progress we've made than we think. I think this is a tough question. I think, again, if I can, you know, take it back to the book, I think that the people in my book kind of struggled to think about the relationship of nonviolence to anti-imperialism. And so there was a, especially, so Gandhi was nonviolent and anti-imperialist, and that worked out well. But the later anti-imperialist movements, like in Africa, anti-colonial movements, were not necessarily non-violent. And so it raised the question for for someone like George Hauser, who was one of the main figures in my book, who became very active in anti-colonial movements and anti-apartheid movements in South Africa, raised the question of, were you first and foremost non-violent no matter what, like yes, sur- you know, surrender to the Russians, or were you anti-imperialist or anti-colonial first and foremost, no matter what? And sometimes that might not be a non-violent form of of resistance. So that was a kind of that was a kind of dilemma for those folks. And I think for us, again, I have like hard time saying that the Ukrainians should have simply uh, surrendered. I think we're, I think we're seeing like a lot of very creative ways to try to mitigate and end the violence. I'm especially thinking of the ways that digital technology and internet technology is being used either to kind of try to shape world opinion, right, by showing these images and showing what's happened in a what's happening in a way that we didn't have the capacity to before, or other kinds of like digital technology, like you know, using map you know, mapping GPS technology to locate where the where the Russians are before they you know, can surprise attack or whatever. So I think there's, I think there's some very interesting efforts to kind of reduce the violence. I think that, you know, one of the things the pacifist said, and I think what, what you're alluding to is it's very difficult in the moment of crisis to suddenly say, hey, everyone should be nonviolent, right? That these are problems that go back years and decades. And it's, it's really important for us to look at the longer history that's gotten us to this point and realized that made a bunch of choices that were not in, you know, in the spirit of nonviolence or didn't lend themselves to nonviolent solutions. And so it, you know, the, the the people that I'm writing about always thought it was, it was a bit unfair to suddenly make those choices for years and decades and then suddenly say, hey, what's your solution now to to this violence? So as you're saying, it's it's a long term. Uh, it's, it's a problem that's been a long time coming.
1: As a person who has has constantly said that he and, and acted in terms of negotiation, President Biden refused, as did NATO, to give any ground to Putin, to give some space to Putin by, for instance, uh, giving way on uh, the issue of NATO and and allowing the option for. Ukraine not to be a part of NATO in order to de-escalate the the uh, tension between the West and and uh, Russia.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm not sure that I have a good answer to what you know what Biden should should be doing or should or should have done at this moment. I mean, I think like think in general we are Biden and, and Putin and everyone is so much working within the logic of kind of like nationalism and and maybe imperialism that it's hard to it's hard to kind of like work your way out of that in any in any particular particular moment but i'm i'm i think i'm like i'm maybe like a lot of other people right like i didn't keep myself educated on this region or on this kind of ongoing conflict in the last several or ongoing ongoing developments in the last several decades and and now in some ways we are not, you know, we don't, we don't, we, we don't have as much, I don't feel like I'm as, as, as informed as i like to be about what, you know, what the options are at this point.
0: Yeah. Dr. Kostick, you pointed out the similarities here between World War One and, and what's going on with the Russian-Ukraine crisis. And and I agree with that. There's, there's a lot of similarities here. And you also pointed out that, that you, like a lot of Americans have not been informed about the situation and the events that led up to this crisis. And that's kind of typical of the way the American political leadership um, functions when it comes to war. They don't present the other side. They don't present the, the grievances that the other side has, and the mainland news doesn't either. And that's exactly what's happened here with uh, Russia and Ukraine. We don't support Putin's attack on Ukraine and, and the massive destruction that's occurring now. But what we're worrying about is the cost, the mainline news, the mainline news has totally just forgot about those demands that uh, Putin and the Russians made uh, years ago and have been making for decades. Those are no longer presented on mainline news, and so people don't hear about them. But then 30 years later, uh, historians like, well, Kosek, they go back and look at that history and they discover, well, wait a minute here. There was a whole list of demands and grievances submitted by the other side that were kind of ignored by the American political leadership and the mainline news. And then they find that leaders discovered that whatever war the United States has gotten itself involved into was really hard to justify or really hard to come up with reasons why it was a necessary war. So we're wondering if the same thing is this happening with the Russian and Ukraine crisis is pretty, because it's, it's so very typical of the way the president, the political leadership has approached war, as well as uh, mainland news. Let's look at a little
1: different subject here. You were awarded the Alan Nevins Prize from the Society of American Historians in 2005. The prize is awarded annually to the best written dissertation in the field of American history. Give us a little information about that prize, and what did the prize mean to you?
2: Yeah, well, that was, as you say, a prize given every year for the, that was the dissertation that became the book, and it was named after, you know, a famous historian, Alan Nevins, and it was, you know, it was a great honor. It was, it's chosen by, you know, scholar-working historians, so, you know, it's kind of like one's peers, so it's, you know, it's, it's not, it's not a giant public prize, like the Pulitzer Prize or something, but within the, you know, within the field, it's, it's important. And I think the, the part about it being partly based on writing was important to me. I tried to make this not just a a story about, or a book about history or about ideas, but actually like something that, that was readable. And I think these characters that I wrote about kind of lent themselves to that and helped me make it what was regarded as a well-written Project because they were just very interesting characters. They were thoughtful and dedicated, and sometimes a little strange. And they and they were fun to write about. So that kind of that definitely helped the help make the project you know what it what it was.
0: Okay, so in the publication, the Christian Century, July 16, thousand fourteen, your book you you stated two Supreme Court cases that were actually about religious freedom. A Supreme Court case decision stated, quote the case of Burwell versus Hobby Lobby has received extraordinary attention as a site of struggle between faith and law. A Supreme Court decision that businesses may refuse on principle to provide contraceptive coverage has not been a shining hour for religious freedom. Many observers fear that the ruling will do less to protect the freedom than to expand the power of corporations. Hobby Lobby has overshadowed two other suits this term that offer more compelling instances of conscious inaction, end quote. So first, let me ask, given the outrage of many in this country about the Supreme Court decision, Roe versus Wade, and the attempt to have that decision overturned, does Burwell versus Hobby Lobby decision bring that reversal closer in terms of getting the Roe versus Wade decision overturned?
2: Yeah, it's a good it's a good question. This is kind of another aspect of my interest in in American religion and the way that we actually think about some of these profound legal and moral questions through through questions about religion. I think that Hobby Lobby Hobby Lobby case kind of does sort of in two parts, right? It's the the question of whether abortion rights or contraception can be can be restricted, and in that sense, it does seem to me that it's it's potentially a case that could, that makes it easier to imagine overturning uh, Roe v. Wade. I also think that it's just independent of the question, of the specific question about contraception. It's it's also a case that was sympathetic to corporations and sort of opened up, and corporations' rights, and sort of opened up, it seems to me, I'm not a legal scholar, so I don't really know all the ins and outs of it, but it seems to open up more opportunities for corporations to basically control the lives of their employees. So I think that actually has implications for religious freedom beyond and for religion and life kind of beyond the question of like abortion or contraception in in this case.
1: Well, I believe there were uh, two other cases you feel were compelling instances of consequences in action. What were those two cases and, and uh... Why so? Why did you feel they, they offered more compelling instances of, of, of conscious inaction?
2: Well, I wrote about this, heard about these these cases, and, I, you know, I, I was thinking about nonviolence, and this sort of brought me back to the questions about nonviolence, and especially like what happened to nonviolence today. So one of the questions we might ask is, okay, we had these enormous um, protests and uh, successful nonviolent actions—you know, the Mar- March on Washington, the sit-in movement, the anti-Vietnam War protests, right—and then what, you know, what happened? And you know, as I as I wrote this before, Black Lives Matter and and some of the other things that have been that have transpired recently. But I was trying to think of like what, you know, my story in the book, in Acts of Conscience, kind of ends in the '60s. I do a little bit at the end toward the present, but I was trying to think of like, well, what happened since then, right? So these were cases, one United States versus Apple, that was about a, an anti-war protester who who um, threw paint on a sign at a military installation or something like that. The other one was McCullen V. Coakley, which was about an, an anti-abortion protester outside a, a clinic. And so in both these cases, there were it was a question about public space right and, and where could you actually where could you be to do nonviolent protests right so the, so the question was like for the military base where this guy was there was a protest zone where you could protest right but there that was the only place you could be around the military base and the abortion clinic had a similar or the hospital had a similar structure in which there was a you had to stay a distance away to protest and and so one of the things i was trying to think about was so what like what's happened to public space right for for nonviolent protests and and does nonviolent direct action rely to some degree on the existence of that public space that isn't sort of claimed or or owned or cordoned off by either corporations or a military base or a hospital, right? Because there's there's some ways where like powerful institutions have learned from the history of nonviolence, right? Like not to let people, <laughs> you know, like congregate on their, on their property, right? And so it struck me that these court cases were kind of like, again, it's not so much the specific legal questions, but these court cases were kind of like wrestling with these with with this question of like where do we what 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 space do we have available to us to to express dissent you know so that's that's what I was you know it's a short it's a short piece but I was just trying to get at that at that question a little bit with that with that essay
1: uh-huh. in the same article the Christian century that's part of a weekly feature titled then and now in this article you conclude those who admired Disruptive faith might hope that it will continue to fracture the laws designated protest areas and buffer zones. How might those who admire disruptive faith acts help to peacefully fracture the laws designated, you know, for protest areas and buffer zones?
2: Yeah, I think that's the I think that's the question. I mean, I'm not sure I'm gonna have an answer, but I think the, you know, the the nonviolent direct action that I look at in the book, like in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, it was it was really surprising to people. It was really shocking when someone sat, an interracial group sat down at a restaurant counter and then didn't, wouldn't leave, you know? And people, you can see, like, especially these very early ones in the 40s, like, they don't know what to do. Like, do we, should we call the police? Should we drag people out? Should we just give give up and give them hamburgers you know like it's it's they don't know what to do because these this early nonviolent direct action was like this really creative new thing and surprising new thing and i think like over time it's become less surprising to us right and it's become less notable and i so i think and also the kinds of things that i'm saying like it's it's become there there become more restrictions and kind of like the Authorities have been able to like uh corral nonviolent uh direct action and make it more kind of re- restricted in in scope right and and limited and so I think that we need to think about new n- you know new forms just like these people in my book were doing in their own time. I think you know some of that might you know I'm not sure that we've really tapped into the power of the of the internet and and digital technology and, th- and thinking about nonviolence. I mean, some of that work is done and we know there's like a lot of bad things about the internet and, and digital technology and misinformation, but there may be kind of new possibilities there that we're, that we're not, that we haven't recognized yet. But I think that one of the things about my book, if there's like a, a lesson from it is like, or kind of inspiration is not necessarily, hey, we should do this specific thing or have this view on a certain issue, right? But there's there's an openness to creativity and an openness to kind of multiple sources of influence, right? I mean, the the idea of taking ideas from Gandhi, which we would think, well, that's obvious now, right? That's just what you would do. Um, but at the time, right, like who's Gandhi? I mean, he's not respectable European intellectual. He's not someone who, and you know, anyone had ever heard of. Kind of a strange guy, right? But these these people that I'm writing about were really were open to that, right? We're like sort of open to inspiration and open to creativity, uh, wherever it it came from. And there's uh, you know other examples of that of that too. And so I think like keeping that spirit of like openness and and creativity and surprise, keeping that alive, is is important going forward.
1: Too. Yeah, I was just going to say there was some movement and, and growth during that period of uh, early. Resistance, uh, nonviolent and, and peaceful resistance, and you're saying that now we need to do some more of that. We need to to grow in our response to some of the restrictions that have been put on
2: the on the movement. I think so, and I think there's there's a sense now of a of a tradition of nonviolence, and so you know when people um, are are marching in the streets that they're kind of invoking that tradition. I think the tradition is important and powerful, but I also think we need to th- keep thinking of new, of new ideas that maybe, aren't, that maybe aren't part of the tradition.
0: So you write about the feature series, Then and Now, which proposes and the goal is to harness the expertise of American religious historians who care about the cities of God and the cities of humans. How do you define the cities of God?
2: Yeah, I think I think to me, like the the way I put it in in kind of the context of what I was thinking about was the you know cities of God and cities of humans kind of like two poles. I mean, the cities of God, kind of the the ideal, the transcendent kind of spiritual principles. If we take that you know as 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 being about nonviolence, the idea of of living at peace, turning the other cheek, and and so on. Cities of humans, I think more of in terms of like the the kind of practical. Dilemmas that we face, at, you know, in in any particular moment or any particular with any particular issue. And I think that one of the things that I was trying to do is to is to show that these pacifists were operating in both of those worlds. And I think pacifists got caricatured by their critics, by you know Reinhold Niebuhr and others, as being kind of dreamy, right? Like only concerned with the kind of ideal cities of God and not really able to say anything pragmatic about the world we were living in. And and that's true sometimes. That's, that can be true. But I was suggesting that these figures actually were pretty aware of that dilemma. And we're actually very interested in the practical implications of nonviolence and the practical um s- significance of nonviolence and we're actually thinking pretty carefully about things like media strat- what we n- now call today media strategies you know like what like how did how did your actions how did actions play in the period that I was writing about it was newspapers it was radio it was television it wasn't you know twitter but but the same kind of questions right like we we've got to think strategically so I was trying to in some ways, I was trying to rescue I ended up trying to rescue the the pacifists from the from the caricatures uh, that we have of them without denying that they were deeply invested in these in these spiritual principles in these in these transcendent principles, but trying to strike a balance
1: there's a writer william Vance trolling jr and, and he had an article prescient pacifist was a name in Christian Century magazine. He says this about your book, Joseph Cossack's Acts of Conscience, covered the time period roughly between 1914 and 1960s. It features Protestants in general and Quakers in particular, focusing attention on certain prominent fat pacifists, such as Sherwin Eddy, Harold Gray, Richard Gregg, A. G. Must and Kirby Page as well, and even Chief Protestant antagonist of the pacifist Reinhold Niebuhr. The authors considered how World War II affected American pacifism and American pacifist community. How do you think the World War II affected American pacifism and American pacifist community?
2: Yeah, it had a huge World War II had a huge impact. It was a bit it was a bit different from World War One because war one uh, there was always a lot of it wasn't it wasn't a super popular war you know afterwards people felt like it hadn't really been you know it was it was kind of about rival nationalisms there wasn't a strong feeling of um of democratic or or you know the the promotion of democracy or justice by a lot of a lot of the critics of the war World war two is somewhat different right there there was a sense that uh <clears throat> because- because of the because of the issue of fascism, right, and the idea that fascism had to be stopped, and that was a moral obligation. It wasn't just that we liked England better than Germany or something right like th- this was a this was a this was an ethical um principle so so the pacifists really found themselves much more isolated than they had in World War one because a lot of people that they agreed with on in politics sort of S- supported the war. A lot of, you know, a lot of liberals, a lot of progressives supported the war, and they found themselves very um, lonely. Some of them went to and helped develop alternative service, civilian public service camps, where they did what we call, you know, like civic civic projects, you know, building roads, fighting fires, and so on. There were a few of them, very prominent figures later, like George Hauser, like Bayard Rustin, who would be in the Civil Rights Movement, who actually went to jail, um, who were so kind of so extreme that they wouldn't even accept alternative service. So that was an experience of being really kind of isolated by uh, in the, in the nation or feeling really out of step with uh, with the nation that shaped them and and I think they felt like they that they had failed that they didn't have a good answer of how to stop Hitler. And I think if you you know, if you read about World War II, it was, it, you know, and what scholars have, have written, it was, you know, it was a catastrophe. And we did not, we did not avert the catastrophe or prevent the catastrophe by intervening in World War II. And it was, again, one of these things that went back decades, right? So it's, so the pacifists had uh, criticisms of this, but they also, they also kind of felt that, that, that sense of failure. And so they, I th- I, in my view, this gave them extra incentive to try to figure out how to make nonviolence work, like how to prove it, right? That it, it, it seemed like the forces of violence could prove that their thing worked, right? That they could defeat Hitler, right? So the, so the proponents of nonviolence had to you know, figure out how could they show that nonviolence worked? And one of the main areas that they turned to was race, which was relevant because this is the time you know World War II where uh, our opponent, our enemy, believed in the master race, believed in inferior races, right. And so it was possible to to point out the point out the evil of racism right in the, in this context. And so this is when people like Bayard Rustin and James Farmer, African Americans and uh, white Americans like George Hauser. Started to develop these again, very small scale, but very interesting uh, nonviolent actions. So um, George Hauser leads a, a sit-in at a restaurant in Chicago, and they, you know, they do this bus ride testing a recent Supreme Court ruling integrating interstate bus travel. So they go with interracial groups and see if they can uh, get on the get on the bus. And so this is the, this is the time. To me, like this is a really powerful time when, or a really uh, important kind of shift when the urgency of uh, finding nonviolent solutions becomes important. And and frankly, even though the war is very popular, right, a lot of people support violence in the sense of going to war. If you look at the kind of the documents from the 1940s, like there's a lot of even even among the war supporters, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of concern there's a lot of worry about violence and about like where we've where we've gotten to, especially after the dropping of the atomic bomb. I think some of this sort of gets sort of gets shoved down because we get the cold war and and kind of a more I guess like America, uh, tr- uh, American triumphalism right and and a story of like American success, right But in that 1940s period there is really a sense that like we have to find a different way, we have to find a different way to solve our problems because this is this is threatening you know like all, all life on earth, right. So I actually think even though we don't consider the even though we don't usually consider these things together, I don't think it's an accident that like 10 years after World War II, 15 years after World War II, there's a mass movement that takes nonviolence as its method. I actually think that there's there was sympathy for that, even among people who weren't pacifists, for saying, yeah, we have to find, we've seen what war can do. We have to find like a different, a different way. And so and so to me, World War II was was really important, not in the way that it's usually thought of um in American history textbooks, but for these pacifists, it was important kind of in 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 those other ways.
0: Huh. So you taught a freshman uh, Dean's seminar entitled, quote, America in the 20s, end quote. It featured The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which is based on a short story by F. Scott Fitzgerald, loosely based. Uh, the Curious Case of ben- Benjamin Button is a t- 2008 American fantasy romantic drama film directed by David Finchner. The storyline by Eric Roth and Robin Schwishcourt is loosely based on the 1922 story of the, the same name by Fitzgerald. The film stars Bradley Brad Pitt as a man who ages in reverse, and Kate Blanchett as a love interest. What was it about this film that you feel was important for your students to see?
2: That was a course that was not actually about nonviolence or very much about religion or 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 the other things that I that we've been talking about but it did kind of i I did the course partly because i i was very interested in these questions of of modernity what it means to be modern questions of progress and the in the 20s is a kind of moment when those questions come to the fore right when we have uh you know it's called the the new era new technology and the flappers and so on right and also immigration restrictions and the ku klux klan and things that we would we would think are are not very progressive right so i was interested in kind of thinking through those questions with the students and and introducing them to primary sources and so and so benjamin button was i mean partly the movie happened to be coming out and you know as a teacher sometimes when you get those like coincidences then you know you take advantage of them so i thought this was a good a good time to look at how some of the stories that we still tell ourselves are based in these uh, historical historical sources. But I think, you know, Benjamin Button kind of illustrates this kind of modern or, or modernist idea of playing with time, right? The idea that time could speed up or, or slow down, right? And we have like slow motion photography and we can see things. That we couldn't see before because we can slow them down, right? Or in Benjamin Button's case, like time could go backwards, right? So it was kind of a it was kind of a way of of thinking through with the, with the students how um, people were starting to experience uh, the world in ways I think like more, more you know, more like more like we do. I think that the 20s and the decades around there are kind of like where we can kind of see people like think uh, thinking more like in, in, like, recognizably modern ways that are maybe more like our own time than they were, like, the, the 19th century. So that's a little bit of, of what I was doing there.
0: So you have a quote that goes, Christianity is probably a great religion. Someone should really try it, end quote. You had the, quote, the implication, of course, is that most people who call themselves Christians aren't Christian at all. What do you mean Christians aren't Christian?
2: Yeah, I think that was actually a a kind of a blurb before another podcast interview that I did. So so it wasn't actually me that said, that said that, but um, but I think like I think the the way that I would phrase it is that from a historical perspective, from a historian's perspective, Christianity has been something that people have fought over and has not been one thing, it's not been something that you could easily define, but it's been something that people have argued about and certainly that's the case and that's part of what's going on in in what I've been writing about right a an argument about what Christianity is essentially and what uh, and how you and how you would live as as Christians and certainly like you know the people that I'm writing about had a very different idea from conservative evangelicals they had a very different idea about Jesus, so, you know, they really saw, G, you know, so the evangelicals have much more of an idea of, historically, of, you know, Jesus, the importance of Jesus is that he died on the cross for our sins, right, and saved saved us from our sin because he was like the sacrifice that that God required to, to achieve, you know, justice or to achieve salvation from sin, and the people in my book, some of them started with that. Uh, it might be the way they grew up, but they eventually came to see Jesus as kind of an exemplar of nonviolence, as someone who confronted confronted empire, but did so uh, nonviolently. Was willing to lose everything, lose even his life, but then to some degree won in the end. And that was that was powerful for the people that I was writing about because they often seem to be losing and they took some uh, comfort and inspiration from the idea that yeah well you know G- Jesus often seemed to be a lot of people in in the in the Christian Bible often seem to be losing right uh, bef- before they they win in the end so so they had a you know they, they had a particular reinterpretation of Christianity that for them put nonviolence violence at the center, and there you can actually see people continuing to talk, uh, and and kind of like I feel like versions of that even even today. And of course, I, it's not still not the most common uh, way of thinking about about Christianity, but it's uh, it's been powerful, I think, for these for these social movements that I that I was talking about.
1: Well, Dr. Kosak, we are unfortunately out of our broadcast time today. Would you share additional thoughts you would like to uh, to uh, share with our
2: listeners? Hey, thanks. This is this has been fun. I think you know, keep thinking, keep staying uh, creative and 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 open to surprises, and that's you know that's what I've been been interested in and and looking forward to in the future.
1: Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, we are out of time. It's, it's been a pleasure to have uh, you join us today, Dr. Kosak, uh, with Solutions to Violence. Solutions to Violence programs air on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m. and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. Our interview today featuring Dr. Kosak airs again April 12th and 13th. To listen live stream, visit us at forwardradio.org. Click on Listen Live Now. The Solutions to Violence program featuring Dr. Joseph Kip kosak will be placed in the WFMP archives Wednesday, April 14th, 2022. So, to visit our archives, go to
0: the website at forwardradio.org, choose Program Archives, then the Solutions to Violence program that features Dr. Joseph Kip kosak For more information and a schedule of programming that may surprise and delight you, visit us at forwardradio.org. You'll find a wealth of offerings. On the broadcast schedule, choose programs to enjoy being a supporter of Forward Radio, WFMP, 106.5 FM radio. It's Little Kentucky's grassroots volunteer-run listener-supported community radio and prying voices to create vital programming heard everywhere. Please send your thoughts and suggestions to us at solutionsofviolence18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Once again, I'm Jim Johnson, uh, here with Jamie McMillan, uh, your host for Solutions to Violence, our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks-Johnson. Thanks for joining us on Solutions of Balance.